I'm Rob Kirkup and this is How Haunted, the paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 71 we head inside the oldest prison in the world. For almost four centuries, this place of incarceration in Somerset has witnessed disease, violence and executions. This has created a breeding ground for those spooks and spectres that remain here to this day. And it is now a tourist attraction that caters for those with an interest in the paranormal. Let's step foot inside the 17th century House of Correction together, as we ask, just how haunted is Shepton Mallet Prison? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Looming over the idyllic Somerset countryside, Shepton Mallet Prison, also known as Cornhill, is the world's oldest prison. It stands as a stark reminder that beneath the picturesque veneer of England's rolling hills lies a legacy of hardship and despair. Within its fortified walls, for 388 years, echoed the clanging of cell doors, the sorrowful whispers of despair, and the chilling silence of solitary confinement. The prison is now a tourist attraction that has fully embraced its haunted heritage, and is a living testament to the evolution of punishment, the depths of human cruelty, and the enduring strength of the human spirit in the face of unimaginable darkness. Shepton Mallet Prison was initially established as a house of correction to comply with the 1610 Bridewell Act of King James I, requiring that every county should have such a house. This was a type of establishment where those who were considered unwilling to work, including vagrants, sex workers and beggars, were sent and put to work. There were already two jails in Somerset, located in Taunton and Alechester, which is five miles north of Yeovil. Shepton Mallet was selected as the location for this new jail in 1624, following a decision made seven years earlier in 1617 that an additional jail was required to cover the east of the county. An acre of land and an existing building was purchased from Reverend Edward Barney for £160, the equivalent of around £32,000 a day, and the first inmates arrived when it opened in 1625. The first governor was George Sheephay. Conditions in the early era of Shepton Mallet's House of Correction were dreadful, completely unimaginable by today's standards. Those being held here weren't separated by age, sex, and the severity of the crime that had led them to be held here. Men, women and children were all held together, with hardened criminals who have committed the most atrocious of crimes, locked up alongside terrified first-time offenders who had committed minor offences. Prisons were damp and dirty. This, along with everybody being held together, led to the spread of illness being rampant, with diseases such as jail fever being commonplace. Today this would be called typhus, and it's caused by bacteria spreading through the bites of fleas and lice. Those infected would suffer a fever, headache, and a rash of red spots. Far too often, those found guilty and imprisoned until the next term of court was the equivalent of a death sentence. Jailers weren't paid a wage, so discipline was almost non-existent. This led to drunken behaviour and all manner of sexual assaults on fellow prisoners. The jailers made a living from taking bribes from prisoners, so wealthy prisoners were able to pay their way into a cell of their own as well as having better food and being allowed visitors. The poor, though, had to rely on blind faith that they would survive their time at the House of Correction. 
The first English civil war broke out in 1642, and by the time it ended four years later, the House of Correction at Shepton Mallet was described as being in poor condition. Following the Monmouth Rebellion of 1685, which was an attempt to depose King James II, who had just succeeded his brother Charles II to the throne, at least 12 men were held at Shepton Mallet House of Correction. They were sentenced to death, and they were taken to the Market Cross where they were hanged, drawn and quartered. By the end of the 17th century, there were 50 crimes in England and Wales punishable by death. By the end of the 18th century, this had increased to 220, and these were known as the Bloody Codes. Lengthy prison sentences were uncommon, so other serious crimes were often handled by transportation to the colonies in North America, the Caribbean or Australia. In 1773, a reform of the prison system was much needed, and an inspection of prisons across England was carried out. Shepton Mallet's report to Parliament, carried out by prison reformer John Howard, was damning. It said, Many who went in there healthy are in a few months changed to emaciated, dejected objects. Some are seen pining under diseases, expiring on the floors, in loathsome cells, of pestilential fevers, and the confluent smallpox. Victims, I will say, not to cruelty, but I must say to the inattention of the sheriffs and gentlemen in the Commission of Peace. The cause of this distress is that many prisons are scantily supplied, and some almost totally unprovided with the necessities of life. A decision was made to extend Shepton Mallet Prison, and in 1790, additional land was bought around the existing building, and work was carried out between 1817 and 1822. The new improved prison was now able to hold around 200 prisoners, in relative comfort, and men and women were now held separately. In the early 19th century, hard labour was introduced throughout the country, and Shepton Mallet was no different. Prisoners were made to carry out work such as breaking up stones that were then used for road building, oakum picking, which was the tearing apart of fibres of old ship rigging, which was then sold back to the shipbuilders and used as wadding between the wooden planks, making it watertight. Then there was the tread wheel, which can still be seen at the prison today. This was installed in 1823. Forty men would tread the wheel at a time, often for many, many hours. It was gruelling work, and would regularly cause hernias. The wheel, one of the largest produced for any prison in England, powered a grain mill just outside the prison wall. It was operated until 1890. Hard labour didn't always produce an end product for the prison, as the main purpose was to punish the prisoner. In 1842, an inspection of Shepton Mallet Prison noted that there was a definite overcrowding. A report read, In greatest want of new cells for the purpose of dividing the prisoners from each other. In number 11 of Ward 8, no less than 8 men have slept in the same room in company from January to September 1841, although in this very room there is only 6 bedsteads. Boards are brought in and placed on the floor where the bedsteads are not sufficiently numerous. Despite this, the following year when Ilchester Jail closed, the inmates being held there were divided up and transferred to Shepton, Mallet and Taunton. By 1845 there were 270 prisoners at Shepton, Mallet Prison. In May 1868 public executions were abolished, much to the dismay of those who loved to attend them. It made a fun day out for the family to go along and jeer the condemned, before cheering as they dangled from their neck until dead. Instead, executions would be performed within the prison itself and with Ilchester closed and Taunton Jail closing in 1884, Shepton Mallet Prison became the county jail responsible for overseeing executions. Between 1889 and 1926, 
seven men convicted for the crime of murder were executed at Shepton Mallet Prison. Their bodily remains were buried in unmarked graves within the grounds of the prison, as was customary with British executions. This is where they remain to this very day. Let's take a look at the seven men who were hanged by their necks until dead within those prison walls. Samuel Rayland was hanged on the 13th of March 1889 for the murder of a young girl. He was 23 years old when he was found guilty of battering to death Emma Jane Davies at Yobridge, Somerset on the 2nd of January 1889. She was just 10 years old. The little girl's lifeless body was discovered in a ditch. Her head was embedded in the mud and her legs were up in the air. Her throat had been slit, with deep cuts into her back and the lower parts of her body. There was a piece of cord tied around her neck. He sent a letter to his parents owning up to the murder. It read, I had something in my head for days after I received a blow from a lump of coal while I was in Cardiff. I cannot tell what possessed me to do it else. I took the old razor from the drawer upstairs. Perhaps you did not know it was there. I was going to do for myself before I met this poor girl, but I hope they will forgive me. News reports at the time said that Raylan had been keen to emulate Jack the Ripper, who had spread terror through London the previous year. Henry Dayton was hanged on the 15th of December 1891 for the murder of his wife. Henry Dayton's wife's body was found drowned in the River Avon. Her body was submerged and her head was on the river bank. Henry was found guilty when the court was told that he'd been in a pub with his wife on the night of her death, and they had had a very public argument. She stormed out of the pub, closely followed by her husband. A man living near the river told police that he heard a woman cry out, Don't hurry, let me get out. He ran towards the sounds, but all he saw was a man running away. When the police paid Dayton a visit, his boots and stockings were soaking wet. When he was found guilty, he shouted, O Lord Jesus, have mercy. He was 35 years old when hangman James Billington executed him. Charles Squires was hanged on the 10th of August 1893 for the murder of an infant. James Billingham was also the hangman for the execution of 28-year-old Charles Squires. He was convicted at the Assize Court in Wells, Somerset for killing his wife's son. Squires had been married for a little over a year, but it was not a happy marriage and he was an abusive husband. A big cause of their arguments was his wife's two-year-old illegitimate son. He was known to abuse the boy. A little after midnight on the 30th of April, the boy started to cry. Squires and his wife had been arguing, and when she went to say to the boy, he refused to let her. He said he would break her neck if she went. Instead, he went, and shortly afterwards the boy was quiet. The next morning, she found her son dead. His nose had been flattened and there were black marks on his cheeks. A doctor said the child had been smothered to death. Henry Quartley was hanged on the 10th of November 1914 for killing his neighbour. Henry Quartley, aged 55, shot his neighbour, Henry Pugsley, on the 3rd of June 1914. Shortly after stabling his horse, Pugsley was shot in the back and fell to the ground. His wife came to help him and a second shot was fired. Pugsley was dead. The reason for the murder was unclear, but the police believed that Courtley had been in a relationship with Pugsley's wife prior to their wedding, and she refused to continue their relationship once she was wed. In court, Courtley pleaded guilty. 
The judge suggested that he speak with his counsel, and he said, I know I am guilty, and what is the use of bamboozling about it? I know I killed him, I shot him, and there's an end to it. He fiercely refused counsel, and his own counsel even tried to argue that even if he shot Pugsley, that doesn't necessarily mean he killed him. But Courtley continued to plead his guilt. He said, This all happened through the dead man's wife. She was the cause of all the trouble. Began it, and left her husband to bear the brunt, and I shot him. I can only die once, and I fear no foe. I am leaving many friends behind me, and I hope they will all cheer up and keep up their peckers. I only wish I had shot her. The judge then put on his black cap and said, Life for life, as was the law. When Henry Quartley left the dock he said, Goodbye all. The trial was noted for being one of the shortest murder trials on record, lasting only 12 minutes. Vernie Asser was hanged on the 5th of March 1918 for killing a fellow soldier. 30-year-old Vernie Asser was an Australian soldier of the 2nd Training Battalion stationed at Sutton Vernie Camp on Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire during World War I. He was tried at Devizes in January 1918 and found guilty of shooting his roommate, 24-year-old Corporal Joseph Harold Durgan, dead on the 27th of November 1917. Durgan was found shot in the head in his bed, a bullet having entered his left cheek, a rifle by his side. The motive for the killing was unclear, but it's claimed they had been arguing over a woman in the evening leading up to the killing. William Grover Bignall was hanged on the 24th of February 1925 for murdering his girlfriend. William Grover Bignall, aged 32, was convicted at the Assize Court in Devizes, Wiltshire on the 20th of January 1925 for fatally cutting the throat of his 37-year-old girlfriend Margaret Legg in a field near Tetbury, Gloucestershire. Miss Legg was found lying in a field near Tetbury Station with her throat cut. Police soon ascertained that she'd left home after packing her belongings, planning to run away with Bignall, who she'd met in 1917 and began a relationship. He was completely unaware that Margaret was already married with a child. She later wrote to him, asking him to come and lodge with her and her husband in Swindon under some pretense, then they would run away together when the time was right. They ran away together, leaving her husband behind on the 25th of October 1924. They travelled around 20 miles to Tetbury, where they went to a pub. Within 30 minutes of leaving the pub, he had killed her. The motive behind this is unclear, although he was drunk. That very night Bignall confessed to a policeman, even offering to show him where the body was. Whilst being taken to the police station, the policeman warned William Bignall to be careful after getting out of the car, and Bignall said, I shall have a longer drop than that, and the sooner the better. John Lincoln was hanged on the 2nd of March 1926 for shooting another man. The last civilian execution at Shepton Mallet Prison was John Lincoln, or Ignatius Emmanuel Nephthali Trebek Lincoln, to use his real name. He was the son of Ignatius Timothy Trebich Lincoln, a Hungarian adventurer and convicted con artist. He was 23 years old when he was hanged on the 2nd of March 1926. This was following his conviction at the Assize Court in Devices, Wiltshire on the 21st of January 1926, when he was found guilty of shooting dead 25-year-old Edward Richards on Christmas Eve 1925. Edward Richards was found by his landlord, bleeding from a wound in his head and complaining of pains in his stomach. He told police he'd gone home and found two men in his house. At the trial, Lincoln said that he'd gone to Richards' home to break in and rob him. This was done with a friend, whose idea it was. However, Richards returned unexpectedly, 
and Richards fired a shot at the pair after finding them in his ransacked home. Lincoln ran at the front door of the house, firing a gun through the gap in the door three times before hitting Richards over the head with a bottle of beer. By 1897, the population of Shepton Mallet Prison had plummeted, and there was only 61 inmates. This decline continued into the 20th century. The last woman prisoner left in 1918, and by 1930 the population of male prisoners was around 50. A decision was made in 1930 to close the prison, and it closed in September of that year, with staff and prisoners being transferred to prisons in neighbouring counties. The prison was then empty for almost a decade, with the exception of a caretaker. But when World War II broke out, the prison once again served a purpose. In October 1939 it reopened as a British military prison known as the Glasshouse. It soon housed 300 men, with some having to live in huts and the prison yard. And it wasn't just troops that were stationed here. 300 tonnes of important documents were transported here from the public record office in London, and stored in the old woman's wing to be held in secret. This included priceless items such as the Doomsday Book, the Magna Carta, logbooks from the HMS Victory, which was Lord Horatio Nelson's flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805, and dispatches from the Battle of Waterloo. At the end of the war they were returned to London. In November 1943 British soldiers who were in room 142 close to the B1 landing died of asphyxiation caused by carbon monoxide poisoning. The names of these soldiers were Frank Gervin of Fife, Glenroy Williams of Bridgend and Harold Smith of Manchester. The purpose of the prison changed in 1942 after America entered into the war and the prison was used by the American military. It was entirely staffed by American military personnel during this period. The first commander was Lieutenant Colonel James P. Smith of the 707th Military Police Battalion. This period saw the most people ever being held at Shepton Mallet Prison. By the end of 1944 there were 768 prisoners here guarded by 12 officers and 83 enlisted soldiers were stationed here. During this period, 18 American servicemen were executed at the prison under the provisions of the United States of America Visiting Forces Act, 1942. 16 of them were hanged, and two of them were shot by a firing squad. Three of the hangings were double executions, which meant that the two condemned prisoners stood together on the gallows, and they were executed simultaneously when the trapdoor opened. Eight of these men were convicted of murder, six of rape, and four of both crimes. In more recent years, a light has been shone on these executions, with a Channel 4 film highlighting that despite 90% of the American military being white during the war, 10 of these 18 men were black, and 3 were Hispanic. The hangman was not an American, it was an executioner of the Home Office, and it was actually the man who had hanged 3 of the 7 men executed here previously, Thomas Pierpoint. He had been the hangman in the execution of Henry Quartley, William Bignall, and John Lincoln. During these executions of American troops, he was assisted by another hangman. These assistants were Alex Riley, Herbert Morris, and most commonly his nephew Albert Pierpoint. They did not prove of the American practice of reading the charge sheet of the condemned man as he stood there with a noose around his neck, awaiting his inevitable end. Albert Pierpoint said at the time, The part of the routine which I found hardest to acclimatise myself to was the, to me, sickening interval between the introduction of the prisoner and his death. Under British custom I was working to the sort of timing where the drop fell between 8 and 20 seconds after I had entered the condemned cell. Under the American system, after I had pinioned the prisoner, 
He had to stand on the drop for perhaps six minutes while his charge sheet was read out, sentences were spelled out, and he was asked if he had anything to say. And after that, I was instructed to get on with the job. The 18 men executed were Private David Cobb, a 21-year-old soldier from Alabama, was hanged on the 12th of March 1943. He was convicted by a general court-martial at Cambridge for fatally shooting 2nd Lieutenant Robert J. Cobner at the 827th Engineer Battalion Ordnance Depot, Desborough, in Northamptonshire on the 27th of December 1942. Private Harold A. Smith, a native of Troop County, Georgia, was hanged on the 25th of June 1943. He was convicted by a court-martial at Bristol for fatally shooting Private Henry Jenkins of the 116th Infantry at Chiseldon Camp near Swindon in Wiltshire on the 9th of January 1943. Private Lee A. Davis, an 18-year-old soldier, was hanged on the 14th of December 1943. He was convicted by a court-martial at Marlborough, Wiltshire, for fatally shooting 19-year-old Cynthia June Lay and raping Muriel Forden on the 28th of September 1943. Private John H. Waters, a 38-year-old soldier from Perth Amboy, New Jersey, was hanged on the 10th of February 1944. He was convicted by a court-martial at Watford in Hertfordshire for fatally shooting his 35-year-old girlfriend Doris Stables at 11A Grey Road, Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire on the 14th of July 1943. Private John C. Leatherbury, a 21-year-old soldier serving with the 356th Engineer General Service Regiment, was hanged on the 16th of March 1944. He was convicted by a court-martial at Ipswich in Suffolk for strangling and battering to death 28-year-old taxi driver Henry Claude Hailstone in a country lane southwest of Colchester and Essex on the 8th of December 1943. Leatherbury's accomplice Private George Fowler was sentenced to life imprisonment. Private Wiley Harris Jr, a 26-year-old soldier serving with the 626th Ordnance Ammunition Corp was hanged on the 26th of May 1944. He was convicted by a court-martial for stabbing to death Harry Coogan, a pimp, at Earl Street in Belfast, Northern Ireland on the 6th of March 1944. Private Alex F. Miranda, a 20-year-old soldier, was executed on the 30th of May 1944 by a 10-man firing squad. He was convicted by a court-martial for fatally shooting 1st Sergeant Thomas Everson of the 42nd Field Artillery Battalion, 4th Division, at Broomhill Camp in Devon on the 5th of March 1944. Private Elliger Brinson and Private Willie Smith, both of the 4,090th Quartermaster Service Company, were hanged on the 11th of August 1944. They were convicted by a court-martial at Cheltenham in Gloucestershire for rape and Dorothy Holmes in a field near Bishop's Cleeve in Gloucestershire on the 4th of March 1944. Private Madison Thomas, a 23-year-old soldier, was hanged on the 12th of October 1944. He was convicted by a court-martial at Plymouth and Devon for rape and Beatrice Maud Reynolds in a field near Alberston near Gunners Lake in Cornwall on the 26th of July 1944. Private Benjamin Pygate from Dillon, South Carolina was executed on the 28th of November 1944 by a firing squad. He was convicted by a court-martial at Tidworth in Wiltshire for stabbing to death Private First Class James E. Alexander from Arkansas at the Drill Hall Camp Westbury, Wiltshire on the 17th of June 1944. Corporal Ernest Lee Clark, aged 23, and Private Augustine M. Guerra, aged 20, were both airmen of the 306th Fighter Control Squadron, and they were hanged on the 8th of January 1945. They were convicted by a court-martial at Ashford, Kent, 
for raping and strangling to death 15-year-old Elizabeth Green at Ashford on the 22nd of August 1944. Corporal Robert L. Pearson and Private Parson Jones, both soldiers of the 1698th Engineers, were hanged on the 17th of March 1945. They were convicted by a court-martial in Chard, Somerset, for rape and heavily pregnant Joyce Brown at Bonfire Orchard in Chard on the 3rd of December 1944. Private William Harrison, a 22-year-old soldier of the United States Army Air Forces, was hanged on the 7th of April 1945. He was tried by a court-martial at Cookstown Courthouse on the 18th of November 1944, accused of sexually assaulting and strangling to death seven-year-old Patricia Wiley in a hayfield in County Tyrone in Northern Ireland on the 25th of September 1944. He admitted to murdering the child and he was convicted. Private George Edward Smith, a 28-year-old airman of the 784th Bombardment Squadron, was hanged on the 8th of March 1945, a day that was also VE Day. He was convicted by a court-martial at RAF Attlebridge in Norfolk for fatally shooting 60-year-old Sir Eric Teachman in woods near Honningham Hall, in Norfolk on the 3rd of December 1944. Private Aniceto Martinez, a 24-year-old soldier, was hanged on the 15th of June 1945. He was convicted by a court-martial at Litchfield in Staffordshire for raping 75-year-old Agnes Cope in her home in Staffordshire on the 6th of August 1944. He was the last person to be hanged in the United Kingdom for the crime of rape. After the Americans left at the end of the war, the prison reverted to a British military prison, and during the 1950s it held the infamous London gangsters Ronnie and Reggie Cray. In 1966 the prison once again reverted to a civilian prison. It was initially used to house prisoners who for their own protection could not be housed with run-of-the-mill prisoners, and also for well-behaved first offenders. The gallows and the execution block was removed in 1967 and the room became the prison library. A new kitchen, boiler room, chapel and education block was added. In 1973 there was around 260 prisoners being held here and it was a training prison for men who had sentences of four years or less. The aim being to equip them with the skills and education to give them a real chance of a future once they were released from prison. By the 1980s the focus of the prison had changed once more housing prisoners who had been in prison multiple times and refused, or not been able to, reform. In 1992, Judge Stephen Tumin, who was the Chief Inspector of Prisons, said the following in a report about Shepton Mallet Prison. We doubt that Shepton Mallet Prison has a future in its present role, and are aware that the total population could be absorbed into vacancies at other Category C establishments in the area. If the prison is to continue, it requires a clear function or set of functions which match the physical resources. By 2001 it was solely holding prisoners who were serving life sentences, and specifically Category C prisoners, which meant that they would likely have already spent a considerable amount of time inside before arriving at Shepton Mallet Prison, and they were a lower security risk, with many being near the end of their sentences. For anybody listening overseas who is perhaps confused by the notion that somebody serving a life sentence could be nearing the end of that sentence. In the UK, a life sentence could end up being as little as 15 years. At this time the prison had an official capacity of 165, but by June 2010 there were 188 prisoners here, with newly arriving prisoners having to share cells for up to a year. 
A report from prison inspectors in June 2010 included, This very positive report is testament to the benefits that can flow from having small-scale niche prisons with settled population. Despite its ageing physical environment, the prison was a very safe place, with positive staff-prisoner relationships, a reasonable amount of activities, and a strong focus on addressing the serious risks posed by the population. It went on to praise the work being done at Shepton Mallet, with prisoners and staff sharing a good relationship and low levels of violence and drug use. But the prison itself was old and tired, and there was talk of increasing the population of the already overcrowded prison by a further 70 inmates. It seemed like the end may be near for Shepton Mallet Prison, and on the 10th of January 2013, just as Secretary Chris Graylin announced that Shepton Mallet Prison was one of seven prisons in England to close. Her Majesty's Prison Shepton Mallet closed on the 28th of March 2013. The closure ceremony was attended by officers and staff past and present, the Bishop of Bath and Wells, veterans and servant prisoners of MTC Colchester, and representatives of the US Armed Forces. The final act was the handover of the Union flag to the last governor. The event was also marked by a fly-past of a Royal Naval Lynx helicopter. With the prison empty and unused, it was put up for sale by the Ministry of Justice. In December 2014, it was agreed that Shepton Mallet Prison would be sold to city and country. An award-winning property developer with a real passion for restoring Britain's architectural heritage. It is now open to the public as a historical tourism destination, offering guided tours, ghost tours, and a variety of other activities. Listeners may well have seen the interior of Shepton Mallet Prison on television or at the cinema in recent years, as it featured extensively in Series 6 of the ITV crime drama Grantchester, and it was also on ITV in 2020 in the drama Des, based on the 1983 arrest and trial of the Scottish serial killer Dennis Nielsen, played by David Tennant. And it was the interior of the fictional Porto Bello prison, in which Paddington Bear was imprisoned in the fantastic Paddington 2. On the 28th of November 2023, it was announced that Shepton Mallet Prison would close its doors as a tourist attraction on the 2nd of January 2024. This was following a breakdown in relationship between the owners, city and country, and the prison's operators, Cove Group, who also operate Shrewsbury Prison in Shropshire. But the following month, on the 22nd of December, the paranormal community received an early Christmas present, as news broke that an agreement had been reached, which would mean that Shepton Mallet Prison would remain open. And considering the illness, suffering, pain and death that occurred right here, it's hardly surprising that Shepton Mallet is considered by many to be the most haunted prison in the UK. Visitors and staff at the prison regularly report sounds, smells and even sights that are difficult to rationalise. The best known ghost at the prison may well be the White Lady. In a remarkable turn of events during the 1970s, the Home Office actually conducted an investigation at reports of strange happenings in Sea Wing, which is where the female prisoners were once held. This was due to prisoners being held there, asking for additional bedding due to a cold draught forever wafting through the corridors and cells. This was often accompanied by the smell of a sweet perfume. Some prisoners begged to be moved somewhere else, anywhere else in the prison, and it wasn't just the inmates as some of the prison guards who work nights would refuse to work in Sea Wing. We will likely never know the full extent of the Home Office investigation, conducted over three days and nights, but the official verdict was that it was inconclusive. 
This offered little solace to those who worked and were being held here, as the happenings not only continued but they got worse. With staff beginning to see shadows moving swiftly in the dark corridors, and the figure of a woman in white stood on the stairs. Who this white lady is is unclear, but it's been claimed that she's a restless spirit of a female prisoner who was being held at Shepton Mallet for the murder of her husband. Some tellings of this legend say that this happened in 1680. She pleaded her innocence, but she was held here in Seawing for five days before she would be taken to the Market Cross where she would be executed. She asked for a final request. She wanted to be hanged wearing her wedding dress. This seemed a harmless enough ask, so it was granted. The morning of her execution she was found dead in her bed wearing the dress. There was not a single mark on her body and no obvious cause of death. An inquest couldn't find a reason for her sudden demise and it was believed that she had died of a broken heart for losing her husband, the love of her life, who she was falsely accused of killing. The reports from the 1970s continue to this very day. The swirling draught, the smell of perfume and the sighting of a lady dressed all in white. It's not just C-Wing which is active. A-Wing is rumoured to be haunted by an inmate who was murdered, his killer never being identified. And B-Wing is home to a very negative spirit who means to harm visitors to his cell. In an unsubstantiated tale that I can find no official record of, the ghost of an American serviceman is said to be here. He was stationed at the prison in World War II, and he was killed by a ricocheting bullet from a 10-man firing squad while he was watching an execution. He is seen walking through walls, wearing his US Army uniform. Another wartime ghost is said to remain eternally in the exercise yard. This time the spirit dates from World War I, and is said to be that of Captain Philip William Ryle, who in 1914 climbed up onto the roof of the prison yelling, Get back, to his fellow soldiers and friends who were stood in the yard telling him to come down. He jumped, taking his own life, and his final words, Get back have been heard whispering into unsuspecting ears ever since, as well as being heard yelled across the yard. The entire prison has its ghosts, but other especially active areas are the kitchen and the general's office. Doors noisily slam closed and areas of the prison empty at the time. People are touched by unseen hands. Footsteps are heard, as are cries of anguish and misery. In September 2017, the Somerset Live website reported on a story which had captured the attention of the local media. The article was entitled, Tour Guide Left with Burnmark After Feeling a Ghostly Present at Shepton Mallet Prison. It read, With its high stone walls and foreboding atmosphere, Shepton Mallet Prison is an eerie place at the best of times. A former Category C jail, HMP Cornhill housed the infamous Cray Twins and was the site of several executions. While the prisoners may have long since departed, its eerie history has come back to haunt one of the prison tour guides. Paul Toole, a senior site manager at the prison, was on a routine tour with a group of visitors one afternoon this month when he entered the condemned man's cell, the area where the condemned prisoner would spend their final hours before their execution. It was then Paul told the story of Private Lee Davis, an 18-year-old American GI who was hanged at the prison for murder in 1943 when it was used as a US Army prison. Davis, who shot one woman and raped another, was alleged to have said, Oh my God, I'm going to die, when he saw the gallows, before becoming hysterical. American executions differ to British hangings in that the condemned person would be read out the charge and asked for a final statement on the gallows itself, with executions taking about seven minutes to complete. 
In contrast, British executions took seconds, with a false bookcase in the condemned man's cell being removed before the prisoner was rushed to the gallows. While telling the story of the private, Paul said he uttered his fate for last words before entering the gallows. It was then that he felt a searing burn in his hand. The only thing different with that tour was mentioned in an American GI's last words. As I walked from the condemned man's cell to the gallows room I had a bad pain in my hand, he said. I looked down and it looked like a large red mark, and I tried to continue with the tour. As I led people out of the gallows room I looked down and thought, blimey, that looks rather raw. I always feel there's a weird presence in that room, as I'm mindful of the people who fell to their death through the trapdoors. The following year, a reporter from Bristol Live spent a night at the prison and an article was published with the headline, I explored the UK's most haunted prison at night, and this happened. A section of it read, The prison has a history that's grim to say the least, and I visited the prison, which is said to be the most haunted in the UK, and attracts ghost hunters from far and wide to try and get a feel for its dark, murky past. I admit I was cynical, not that I don't believe in ghosts, but I've also never seen anything to make me believe, so in my head, logic has always prevailed. But I am easily spooked, so ghosts or no ghosts, wandering around an abandoned prison late at night was always going to be scary. Luckily, I wasn't alone. I was being joined by 30 other ghost hunters all hoping to stumble across the supernatural. During the tour of the Three Acre site, conducted completely by torchlight, I was taken to the former infirmary, the general's office, the exercise yard and the kitchens. This is the area our tour guide Paul says he hates the most, saying, whenever I know I need to lock up this area, I wrote to someone else to do it. I hate it. A kitchen used by prison staff doesn't seem like the part of the prison that will contain the most horror stories, but with its long corridors and huge industrial machinery creating looming shadows wherever you look, you can see why. Workers who were renovating this part of the prison before it closed reported seeing a man dressed in military police uniform come through an end wall and walk straight down the corridor. They refused to continue working on the site and an investigation was carried out, though it found nothing. The soldier is thought to be the spirit of a member of the American army who was killed out in the yard after a bullet ricocheted off the wall during an execution had killed him. We were also told the grim tale of Captain Philip William Ryle who in 1914 was able to climb onto the roof of the prison via an unattended ladder in the exercise yard. His final words before he jumped, get back, get back, get back, were heard echoing around the yard by dozens of inmates in the years that followed. These stories, although fascinating, weren't leaving me feeling particularly spooked. But then we entered prison wing A and things suddenly got darker. The huge deserted wing with its empty, soulless cells and cold, wire-framed beds is enough to unnerve even the steeliest among us, especially after we were directed into a cell where one inmate murdered another. Wing A follows through to Wing B, which our second tour guide Charlie tells us where he gets the most negative energy in the whole of the prison, particularly around the first two cells. Braver than me, my accomplice headed straight for one of the two cells and came out of there as quickly as he went in saying, I didn't like that. I definitely heard something. It was the first real spook of the tour. We were next shown to the condemned man's cell, which led straight through to the gallows, where those sentenced to death would be left to hang for one hour, before being taken across to the mortuary. Walking around Shepton Mallet Prison, you can feel its history. It's everywhere you look. In the walls, the ceilings, 
the blocked up staircases. Yes, it's creepy, but is it haunted? I wasn't convinced. But once the tour was over, Charlie and Paul asked if I wanted to pop back to the areas of any of the prison to get some pictures or video without the rest of the group. I said yes and headed back into Wing C, where we'd just come from. The wing believed to once house the infamous Cray twins. This wing is said to be haunted by the White Lady, a woman wrongly convicted of murdering her love and sentenced to death. Just the previous evening, Charlie claims he saw part of her dress on the staircase. As I took out my phone to start filming, my camera completely froze. No matter how many times I closed the app and reopened it, it would not move from the same frozen screen. No problem, I thought, I'll use another phone. So I started to record a video, all was going fine, until it just stopped recording on its own, just as I was about to enter a second cell. I thought maybe the phone's memory was full, but was assured it wasn't, so I tried again. The phone's entire screen went white, and no matter how many times we tried to re-record the video, it just wouldn't work. A coincidence? Maybe with one phone, but two perfectly functioning iPhones not working at the same time? That's odd. Do I believe? I'm still not sure. But either way, HMP Shepton Mallet is a fascinating place. Just be prepared if you're going to go after dark. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod. Or over on Instagram at How Haunted Pod, where you will see photos galore relating to Shepton Mallet Prison. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, the ghost stories, and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more, there's currently a free 7-day trial to the £3 tier, so you could get access right now to last month's special episode where I spent 48 hours in the company of a haunted doll. Then there are all of the other special episodes, which include the big Halloween special at the Golden Fleece in York, Kielder Castle, the York Dungeon, Bedlam Theatre, and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. The February episode will be coming soon, and that sees you join me at the Dean Court Hotel in York. You can also get yourself some exclusive How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate a couple of pounds to help with the admin side of the podcast? You can do this at buymeacoffee.com forward slash how haunted pod all the information and links are in this podcast episode description if you've enjoyed this episode then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice it'll only take you a few minutes and it really does help other people to find how haunted next time out we return to the northeast of england and take a look at some of the historic theaters that are believed to be haunted we will encounter the ghost of a legend of the carry-on movies Another man who was killed in a terrible accident when he was hit with a cannonball. And the restless spirits of two women who tragically took their own lives. Join me next episode when we ask, just how haunted are the theatres of Tyne and Weir? Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, 
and join me next time when we will once again ask the question How haunted? <laughs>